Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-39. The thing about the Israelite household, though, was that everyone would have been required to participate, every physically able person, regardless of you know your, your sex, your age, um, whether you wanted to do it or not, you know, you were physically required as part a member of the household to help the household survive. Hello there, this is Avi ben Mordechai, and once again, this is Real Israel Talk Radio. And on today's program, my special guest is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott at William Jessup University near the central northern California city of Sacramento, California. Dr. Schaefer-Elliott holds positions at the university as Associate Dean of the School of Theology and Leadership, as well as Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology. Professor Schaefer-Elliott owns a Ph.D. earned while studying at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, that is Britain, England. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott is also an experienced field archaeologist who has spent a number of years excavating and digging up all of ancient Israel. My guest is the author of the book, The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant, which um, essentially is a user-friendly exploration of some basic concepts within archaeology, as well as the techniques and methods used by archaeologists these days in the field of archaeological exploration. Professor Schaefer-Elliott is also the author of another book, which is what we will be getting into today as well, that is a food in ancient Judah, domestic cooking in the time of the Hebrew Bible. So, uh, Professor Dr. Schaefer-Elliott, welcome. Nice to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. I, I'm just curious, um, do you like to cook at home? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get that question a lot. I do. I do like to cook. But what's interesting, or what my family finds funny, is I am a picky eater. Mm. And here I am, somebody who studies ancient food and food ways, and yet I am a picky eater. So the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> well, I've, I've got to hear some of the stories of uh, some of the uh, things that you have found in your archaeological digs, uh, the excavations over the past many years. I'm sure you've run into some interesting material culture, yeah? No? Yeah, mm-hmm. I really have. I'm assuming you are uh, familiar with or have met uh, Dr. Elat Mazar as well over in Jerusalem. I excavated with Elat at Oxiv. She was fantastic. I loved working with her, too. What do you think of her City of David findings and uh, her interpretation of what she's finding? What do you think? You know, that's the thing about archaeology is people think it's just very black and white when in actuality, it's just as much subject to interpretation as anything else is. Mm -hmm. She's a great archaeologist. I'm so excited for her and the work that she's doing there. Have you also um, met Professor Stephen Collins from uh, Tel Hamam, I believe it was, over for 
Sodom and Gomorrah? I met him briefly at the ESOR mm. annual meetings, but um, mm. I have never worked with him and not like a full mm. uh, conversation with him about that. Okay, um, Dr. Uh, Schaefer Elliott, I was reading through your uh, material, and uh, one thing that uh, caught my attention, uh, you had mentioned uh, critical thinking, which which is really, of course, really academic. Uh, you have gone on record to state that one of your passions is to teach people how to read the Bible, including that of reading it critically. So if you would, please, I'd like you to give uh, our audience a little bit of an example or two about how you might define and apply the idea of critical thinking to the study of the Bible. Like, if you could do that, please. I think the term critical has been hijacked to mean something negative. Usually we say that word today and we think of people being judgmental hmm. and as, as a negative connotation to it. When I say critical thinking regarding uh, the Bible, uh, what I mean is uh, using um, you know, biblical scholarship, biblical criticisms, and again, there's that word critical, but that really just means a close, careful analysis or slow reading, really. So, for example, what happens a lot of times, especially with people who are familiar with the Bible, is we tend to skim the stories that we think we know. And we all do this. I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. But when we can stop and we can slow down, and I do encourage people to read the text out loud, um, and I encourage that one so people can get a sense that maybe what the original audiences might have heard, because most of these would have been oral traditions first before they were written down. Mm -hmm. So one to kind of connect us with those original audiences, but also reading it out loud causes us, it forces us, if you will, to slow down as we actually read it. So one of the things, exercises I do to showcase this idea is we look at the, um, what I call the, the David and Bathsheba and Uriah incident. Okay, in okay, okay. And uh, the reason I do that is I have them get into their groups and they read it out loud or they get with a partner and they read it out loud. And I just ask some basic questions. Who, what, when, where, why? And who is doing what? Where are they? What are, does the text tell us why they're doing it? And how are they doing it? So it's some really basic questions. And what ends up happening is when we come together as a larger class, and I ask those same questions to the class at large, once they've had a chance to ask the questions themselves to the text, and I ask them, okay, so where was David? All right, he's in Jerusalem. You mm -hmm, know, we mm -hmm. where in mm -hmm. Jerusalem? Oh, he's on the roof of his palace. Mm -hmm. And I say, um, I say, okay, so what is Bathsheba doing? Well, she's she's bathing. Okay, where is she? And almost always, people, whether it's one, two, ten, or whatever, people in the class will say, she's bathing on the roof. And I say, is she? And they look again, they look at me all puzzled. And then somebody looks at the text again and says, doesn't say where she is. It just says that she's bathing. And I said, who is on the roof? David's on the roof. 
So just that one tiny little exercise where we have skimmed this story thinking that we know it and we know it so well, where we kind of blur the story together. Hmm. And, and as such, you know, throughout history, poor Bathsheba has been kind of demonized as the seductress that she's on the roof, mm-hmm. you know, doing what she's doing mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. entice King David. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, it doesn't give us that that impression at all, oh, wow. actually. In wow. fact, why she's bathing, actually, the reason being that she's purifying herself, that she's a fairly devout woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just asking some basic questions of who, what, when, where, why. Um, and, you know, allowing, getting into the historical context of the text, the cultural context, the geographical context. I, I'm a real big um, believer in a contextual approach to biblical scholarship. So asking, you know, those questions, but if you want to use academic lingo, you would mm-hmm. say the geographical context, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. historical context, mm-hmm. the cultural context, the literary mm-hmm. context, mm-hmm. Um, and then getting into the so what question. Dr. Uh, Schaefer Elliott, would you say that from your experience uh, over the years that uh, people have a tendency to kind of turn the biblical readings that they do into a, a kind of a, a fast food syndrome, you know, just skim it real quick, get it over with and uh, move on to something else? Has that been your experience, would you say? I think so, at least in my traditions. But you get a lot of people who are more familiar with the teachings and the, Jesus and the Gospels and the letters of Paul, but very rarely pay much attention to the Hebrew Bible. And there's a lot of um, cultural context in there that we just don't for the most part, understand, which is why I think um, doing just a little bit of research, especially into the cultural context, will help us understand, I think, some of those uh, those texts that confuse us. Do you um, also propose or suggest that your students or that a student of the Bible should get maybe a little bit of uh, training or study in uh, biblical Hebrew, Aramaic, does that usually help? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our biblical studies and theology majors, they are required to take um, biblical languages as undergrads. And of course, that's not required for all of our students. And it can be a little scary to take um, ancient languages. You know, learning languages just in general is, is mm-hmm. can be difficult mm-hmm. for most people. You know, so if you can, um, if you have the chance to take some classes, whether mm-hmm. they're online or whether they're um, through mm-hmm. a local mm-hmm. college or university, mm-hmm. if you really want to get into the text, you know, then that's that's really a, a good way to do it. So, uh, dealing with your training and your discipline, uh, let's talk a little bit about ancient Israelite families in the Bible. How much do we know about? The uh, Iron Two ancient Israelite families. Uh, Iron Two is identified as a segment of time for my uh, listening audience 
around the time about 950 thereabouts uh, before Yeshua, before Jesus, about 950 to about the Babylonian exile. How much do we actually know from that particular period of time? That's a great question. I think um, we know uh, more than we did, and we're learning um, more you know, every year, I mean, because I think people are getting more interested in households. Uh, there is a branch of archaeology called household archaeology. When we're excavating houses and when we're analyzing them later, we pay really close attention to space. So how is the house built? How is it laid out? And this isn't new, the layout of the um, Iron Age house, uh, which has been called the four-room house or the Israelite house or the pillared house. I think pillared house is a good term. Um, Israelite, it's Hard to say if the people who, you know, there's no graffiti on the walls that says, you know, Israelites lived here. <laughs> I wish we did, but mm -hmm, we don't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not all the rooms have four rooms. They, mm -hmm. they generally do, but they have a basic floor plan. So that's been known um, for quite a while. And so there's lots of excavations around Israel that have um, excavated these houses. And so that corpus is getting bigger and bigger. At Halif, that is what we focused on, was understanding daily life from a domestic perspective in Iron II Judah at Halif. Mm -hmm. And um, we did household archaeology. We're excavating houses. And so when we pay attention to space when we're excavating, so a spatial analysis, meaning we're not just interested in what we find. We're interested in what we find and where we find it and their relationship of the artifacts to the actual house and the features of the house. So you have the house architecture. You also have the house features and features would be immobile things like pillars or water cisterns or a grinding installation, things that don't move. <laughs> so those things actually teach us a, a lot about how they live then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Let's say we're in a room and we find the remains of a feature, which is an oven. Okay. So we find this oven, we go, okay, that's one clue to tell us how this space was used what type of daily activities occurred in this space. And then we also want to pay attention to what else was found around this oven in the same room. What else was found in the same room? So if there's a cooking pot or cooking pots, plural, or carbonized pits, uh, olive pits, you know, let's say, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. then we have a pretty good clue this area was used for food preparation. Rooms weren't single use. They mm. were very utilitarian. They had multi-use functions. Mm. For example, at Halif, we had a room with broken remains of some cooking pots. Uh, and we did took some samples to do some um, micro analysis to see what kind of botanical remains were mm -hmm. found. Mm -hmm. uh, but also in that same room against the wall, we found several what we call loom weights, a loom made out of wood that was used to weave blankets and clothes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they had weights made out of clay, fired clay, that were hung at the bottom to create tension for wow. the strings. So, of course, when the house burnt down, because it did, 
by the Assyrians, mm -hmm. 701. Mm -hmm. um, the wood, of course, doesn't survive, mm -hmm. uh, but the loom weights do because they've already been fired. So the fire of the house just makes them stronger. So right next to that oven and all that food preparation stuff, we also had all these loom weights, which indicates that it's not just food preparation going on in that room, that there was also weaving activities occurred in that room too. And so that's the type of thing that we we look at. We pay very close attention to space, what things were found, where they were found, and where they are found in relationship to each other. There's a term you uh, archaeologists use. It's called in situ. Is that correct? Right. So where something was found when it was left, how was it used in that time and space and finding it in its original kind of use spot. So not like a secondary context. Maybe there's a wall and somebody tore down the wall and used those stones someplace else. So we're thinking original type of function, but it's situation in life, this oven that was used and when was it used and how did we find it? It's really hard when you excavate. It really is in so many mm. ways because you are uncovering these things that haven't been mm. seen or touched in thousands of years. Mm. And mm. you're the first person to see and to touch it. And it's, very profound. You know, it's very moving when you think about that. Besides all the hard work and the heat and the sweat, mm -hmm. when you think about that, you're the mm -hmm. first person to touch, you know, this thing that belonged to someone else thousands of years ago. So we excavate in layers, right? We want to mm -hmm. control the chaos because we're actually destroying mm -hmm. the situation, the context. As you go down as further. As go, go down. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So those things have been sitting in the dirt for thousands of years, and we want to uncover them. But when we uncover them, we're taking them out of that situation. So we want to be very careful as we do so, and we want to document everything, which is one reason why archaeology takes so long is because of all the documentation, different types of documentation we have to do. So mm -hmm. as we're peeling back the dirt, you know, centimeters by centimeters, when we see something pop up, you have to really stop yourself and your volunteers <laughs> from just digging that a pit around that thing and getting it out. You don't want to do that. You want to let it come up naturally so you can see it in situ, see it where it is in its own situation. Well, this whole story that you're telling reminds me very much of, uh, you know, a parable that Yeshua taught, Jesus taught. Uh, he was talking about a woman who lost a coin in the dirt floor of her place. Is that kind of what we're looking at? People just drop things, they lose things, and they go, now where did I put that? Where did that thing go? You know, And you archaeologists come along thousands of years later and you go, it's right here. Right. <laughs> you know, people would leave their homes for a variety of reasons. They would, you know, abandon them or they would get destroyed. And so we get to come back and try to uncover uh, what mm. they left behind. And, you know, as I was saying before, we're the first person to see or touch these things in mm. thousands of years. Mm. And what fascinates me is more of the history and culture and social behind it. Mm -hmm. In other words, what's the story behind this? Who made this? How did they make it? Why did they make it? Who used it? Um, is it the same person? 
Hmm. Uh, if not, why? How did they use it? You know, I'm interested in the artifact, but I'm fascinated with the story behind the artifact. Hmm. And when we are uncovering things, and sometimes you get these handles that are a mold that are then pressed onto the, the jar or the hmm. jug. Hmm. And if you can sometimes feel where the potter's hand or thumb impressed upon the clay wow. onto the handle. And sometimes, sometimes there's even a thumbprint there. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That, so you're touching something that a person thousands of years stuck their thumb into it. Right. And all that time and space between them and me. Hmm. And here I am hmm. at this one moment in time, how I'm hmm. connected with them. You know, this really brings up an interesting question. Um, why are these things sort of just sort of left there and then they don't ever come back for what they left it's like it's frozen in time and they leave their home and they don't ever return and then we find it thousands of years later well there's a variety of situations just depending on the site in general mm -hmm. but if i'm going to use halif as an example halif was a small fortified town about 10 to 12 acres in size in the Iron II Judah, uh, when the Neo-Assyrian Empire, after they destroyed the Northern Kingdom of Israel in 721, you know, they come down to Judah. So this is the time of King Hezekiah, mm -hmm. uh, Isaiah, the prophet, the Assyrians. And we even read from Sennacherib's prism that he destroys 46 towns and villages in Judah sure. alone. Sure. And Halif was one of those towns. Hmm. So when people leave their homes, the enemy is at the gate and you know that you either leave or you die or mm -hmm. get taken into slavery and exile. You leave and you take only what's absolutely necessary. It's kind of like here with the wildfires. If we had an evacuation, what would we take? Hmm. I would take important papers. Of course, mm -hmm. I would take my loved ones and my pets, photos, things that are yeah. important to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I would leave my cooking pots and pans behind. <laughs> sure. And you leave them in situ. In other words, just the way they were, that's it. And you just head out as quick as you can. Right. You head mm. out as quick as you can. And so when the Assyrians would come and conquer a town, they would usually set fire to that town. And so if you have a two-story house, the top story of the house would, of course, burn and collapse onto the floor of the first floor as it was when those people left. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't happen in all sites. Okay, let's address food. We survive on it. It's always a hot topic of interest mm -hmm. on radio and television. Uh, there are these celebrity chefs and uh, entire television networks that are dedicated to cooking and baking and doing all that kind of thing. Share with us some of your insights that you've learned from your archaeological experience about food in the time of the Hebrew Bible. With my first question, the process of food prep was it easy? Was it difficult? Time-consuming? So-so? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I like to cook, but I probably wouldn't have liked to cook then. <laughs> oh. um, but if you think about your your average ancient Israelite 
household, the people who were part of the household and the house itself, you know, the house wasn't just a dwelling. It was also a workplace. Uh, and most ancient Israelites were agro-pastoralists, meaning they were farmers to a certain extent. If we could use that term, that was mm-hmm. their daily life. You know, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. they worked the land to survive off the land. Everything was very seasonal. Um, but of course, you try to learn how to store things, especially uh, dry goods that could go last into the winter. But if we think about even just bread, right? Lachem, meaning bread, but is synonymous with just the general word for food. That's how much they ate hmm. cereals and bread. So we think that um, their diet was really heavy on cereals, uh, maybe even as much as 50% as their of their caloric intake was cereal-based. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. My special guest is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott at William Jessup University near Sacramento, California. Dr. Schaefer-Elliott holds positions at the university as an Associate Dean of the School of Theology and Leadership, as well as Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott has authored two books based on her field excavations in Israel and has a third book coming out in 2021. I'll resume this discussion with my guest after we take this short break. to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-39. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Once again, shalom friends, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and my special guest is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, Associate Professor of Bible and Archaeology at William Jessup University near Sacramento, California. Let's now continue where we left off in discussing food in ancient Judah, domestic cooking, and domestic life in the time of the Hebrew Bible between 500 and 1,000 years before Yeshua shows up on the scene. With my first question, the process of food prep, it's a tremendous amount of work is what I hear you saying. I mean, they were really close to their groceries back then, whereas today we just do a fast dash over to the market and grab our thing and we're done. And your food back those days, it didn't come easy, did it? You would have to go through this lengthy process to make the wheat from an inedible form to an edible form. Mm -hmm. And so that would include besides, you know, after the harvesting, you know, separating the good part from the bad part, threshing it, um, soaking it, milling it. Um, grinding it from grain into flour and the grinding the grain into flour, you know, we find in houses, we find um, things that would do this. So we've got pestles and mortars, which Mm -hmm. would have been small, like more portable ways of grinding Mm -hmm. anything. It didn't come easy, did it? No, it didn't. And in fact, some have estimated that maybe 
just making the bread would have taken two hours every day. And plus having to take care of the the family, the husband, the kids, all of the domestic duties. They didn't have time to play video games, did they? Right, right. The thing about the Israelite household, though, was that everyone would have been required to participate. Every physically able person, regardless of you know your your sex, your age. Um, whether you wanted to do it or not, you know, you were physically required as part a member of the household to help the household survive. Are you saying that the men, women, children, everybody was kind of in on the whole food prep process? Everyone was in on everything. Um, I would say that women did tend to dominate the food preparation, mostly because we think because of their reproductive role. You know, if you are, you know, eight months pregnant, you're not going to go plow the field (laughs) Mm. unless you're the only person who really can. I mean, because you think about it, if there was a call to war and all the able men went to war, everyone had to know how to do every task, regardless if they were male or female. Now, that doesn't mean that every person did every task all the time, but women did seem to dominate the food preparation. You know, there's lots of household activities that need to be done, whether it's in the field or the home. The man uh, is at home and uh, his wife says, uh, will you please do this, this or this, or grind this wheat up? Today, the man could say, can I get to a little bit later? I'm reading the paper. I'm watching a documentary. I'm watching the news. I'm blah, 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 whatever. If you want to eat, get to work now and you don't have time to mess around. Right. I think we underestimate the imperativeness of the household, everybody participating, just so the household will survive. Even in good times, you know, there was good times and there's bad times, but everyone had to participate. Times of planting and harvest, every able body member of the family, the household would have been out there. It wouldn't have just been the men's work, right? In times of war, like I was saying, you know, the women of the household would have to pick up the slack if the men were called out to war. You even have within the Hebrew Bible some of the narratives that talk about food preparation. It shows that men and women were part of the whole process. But a lot of scholarship does seem to think that the role of food preparation was overseen by the women of the household, in particular, Mm -hmm. the matriarch of the household. I would interpret that as being very strong in family relationships as compared to today, everyone's busy, Everyone's right. got their thing that they're doing. And uh, back then, uh, you could get on the nerves of somebody. The kids are busy, the husband, the wife, the in-laws, the nuclear family. Am I getting this right? That relationships were really, really important in that time. Is that what your research is showing us? Yeah, I would agree with that. And the reason I use the term household instead of family is because a family is defined by marriage marriage and kinship and descent, whereas a household is defined by co-residence and co-working. So Mm. a household, especially like in ancient Israel, a household would consist of a family, you know, your patriarch, your matriarch, their married sons and their families, their unmarried daughters or other female family members. And maybe if there's any kind of, you know, secondary wife, also people 
who aren't related, Mm. who maybe work at the household, or maybe they live at the household and work there, or maybe they live and work there just temporarily. Mm. So for instance, like if it's time for harvest time and Mm -hmm. you hire some workers to Mm -hmm. help you with the harvest, Mm -hmm. if they live with you, they're part of your household. If they work with you and they don't live with you, they're still part of your household for as long as they're connected with that household. So in today's terms, it would be like if I had a tenant, you know, if I had someone renting a spare room at my house, they lived here. So they would be part of my household. They don't work here, but they live here. Or also, let's say maybe I hired a nanny and that nanny would come to my house every day. That Mm. nanny would be part of my household because she works here, even though she doesn't live here. Did the woman of the home ever say, stay out of my kitchen, would you please? You're you're making a mess. (laughs) I don't know because, I mean, the kitchen was often Mm. the central space inside the house. Mm. Like I said, all the rooms were very Mm. multifunctional. Mm. So you wouldn't have had just a kitchen. You would have had Mm. a food preparation area in a room that maybe other activities were conducted in, especially Mm. in the winter months. Months. Mm-hmm. But then in the hot summer dry months, most houses had like a courtyard area. Yeah, yeah. And um, oftentimes we find remains of an oven out there too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on the season, whether it was done inside the house or outside the house, but regardless, the space was multifunctional and you would have to be in a small space with other mm-hmm. people doing other tasks. Do we know who did all the cleanup? You know, people are spending a lot of time in food prep and eating regularly. Mm-hmm. So who's doing the washing of the dishes and uh... you know everyone had to step up and and do stuff because ultimately this is not a world where you are an individual it it brings out an interesting point if you didn't work you didn't eat plain and simple yeah i I would agree with that from your digging in the field uh have you ever come across any information from the material culture that you've been digging up, anything about how the demarcation lines are between the rich and the poor? How did the rich eat? How did the poor eat? Was there a middle class? Those kinds of questions. So when we're talking about social aspects, you know, we have to use all these different things at our disposal because there's there we don't have one thing that says well these people are ate this because they're rich and these people ate this because they're poor you know we don't get anything really clearly spelled out so we have to make use of all these different mm-hmm, things mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. try to come up with a picture from all these different sources and it would seem like your average Israelites were um, subsistence level farmers you know and mm-hmm. depending on the year Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it was good or bad there was probably more bad years than good so I don't think there was much of a middle class what I hear you saying is that it seemed to have been really important that we would really understand passages like Shema Yisrael I will give you your rain in its proper time and its grain and new wine and oil and if they didn't have that stuff they didn't eat They had to be mindful of their creator. They just couldn't be messing around. Today, we can get away with a lot more because because we can go down to the local store 
we're not in touch with our groceries as much as they were back then. Yeah, we're not in touch with our food unless you mm. grow your own or unless you work in you know, yeah. agricultural. So you're saying that most of the foodstuffs for the family sustenance came from the fields where they farmed and they did that. And was there meat involved? Meat was something they seldomly ate. It makes a lot of sense when you are a subsistence level farmer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have herds, primarily sheep and goat. You might have some cattle, but you use that cattle for muscle primarily. And so you're really dependent upon your herds for their secondary products, their milk that you would make into multiple types of dairy products, um, their fleece that you would make into clothes, their dung that you would dry to use as fuel for your fires. So you are just as dependent upon your herds as they are on you. You wouldn't butcher an animal uh, just because you had a hankering for lamb chops, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, because then you are putting your family in jeopardy because you no longer have that animal secondary product. So reasons why you would eat meat, it would happen, but primarily for special occasions like weddings, like hospitality feasts, like religious festivals, or if you needed to cull the herd for some reason, maybe you were doing really well and uh, you think, well, we, we can't have too many animals uh, because our fields won't sustain them. I'm thinking about the New Testament story, the prodigal son, where the father celebrates with everybody in the home. And so they say, go off and kill the fatted calf. And the same thing with Abraham when he gets his visitors and they slaughter. Yeah. It's a special occasion. It's a special occasion. But it's interesting what you're saying. I hadn't even thought about that. The rest of the animal was used mm -hmm. for other things. And if you slaughtered it for meat all the time, you didn't have clothing, blankets. You didn't have other commodities coming off of that animal. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wow. So if you're dependent upon that animal, you're you're those animals, you're not going to kill them unless you had a good reason to. Right, right. No, that that totally totally makes a lot of sense. I had never even put that one together. Yeah, cuz we're so used to today, you know, oh your your meat and your veg and your starch, you mm -hmm, know, that's mm -hmm, a typical mm -hmm. dinner for mm -hmm. us carnivores. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that would not have been the case for them. Your archaeological experience uh being in the field for the years that you have and seeing so much, can you tell us at all a little bit about Maybe some of the things you've run across, you mentioned earlier about carbonized seeds, <laughs> things that were left behind. And 2,000, 3,000 years later, we're seeing the very elements that they had in their kitchen when they had to leave quickly. Have you run across carbonized stuff? Yeah, carbonized pits and grains. and You, you look and you say, there's a whole cooking pot full of this stuff, and you've seen it and touched it with your own experience. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and you want to find these things. So we have to look very carefully. They're not easy to find because they're so little sometimes, and sometimes they just kind of blend into the dirt, which is why we have all these other you know different methods 
to help us find these things. But I, I remember my very first season or maybe my second season at Rehove, we had these big buckets of dirt that Ami needed us to go through because you can't touch it with your hands. You have to use um, tweezers. And we had to pick mm. out all the carbonized seeds from this dirt, we'd put a little bit on a on a, a tray or a metal um, dustpan and and use tweezers to pick them out and put them in little um, in three different sample jars. So mm-hmm. then those sample jars would go to some labs that do carbon fourteen dating mm-hmm. to help us get a more accurate window of of dates for that layer of of time that we're at. Are these seeds are they intact with their DNA even after so long being in the dirt? Yeah. So we get olive pits, uh, sometimes fruit pits, sometimes grain. You know, the people who work in these labs are able to do the dating from it and give us a really good window because the the carbon, you know, stops at a, at a, at a certain point. So they're able to do that and be able to get a better dating from it. And it's really helpful, especially when sometimes the archaeology isn't as clear as you would like it to be. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. to be able to get more pinpoint, you know, more accurate dates, especially in a time period like the Second Iron Age, where uh, in Israel we don't have a lot of absolute dating. Um, we get more, you know, with the Assyrians yeah, yeah, and the Babylonians, yeah. but in Israel itself, you know, if they're writing on papyrus, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or or mm-hmm, leather, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't survive for very long periods of time unless it's in really specific mm-hmm. heat and Mm -hmm. arid conditions. You know, when I was uh, back in uh, school and tour guide school in Israel, there at the city of David, you've been there. So you see there's an area there near the stone step uh, uh, platform. The The uh, structure. The structure, Mm -hmm. yeah. Where there's a a toilet, a cesspool toilet that, you know, that (laughs) fell out, you know. Uh And we were told that uh, an archaeology team, and they went in and they dug up something that was remaining from what was in that toilet what was in the dirt there they dug it up apparently that's what we were told and brought it under electron microscopes and i don't know what have you and they determined what the people were eating at the final moments of that babylonian siege Uh In 2 Kings 25, they told us exactly what they were eating from doing that research there. And they also happened to come across in the remains of what was in that toilet cesspool, something that would indicate they were cannibalizing their children, just like Jeremiah Jeremiah. speaks in chapter 19 about the eating of their children, raw meat. I kid you not, raw meat that they were just trying to survive on. And I remember that study from my professor when when I was in school, and I found it remarkable. I mean, do you have any comments at all about anything like that? It's one of the best developments within archaeology within the last, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 20 years, maybe mm-hmm. less, is the marriage of archaeology, especially field archaeology and mm-hmm. the sciences, mm-hmm. where we've got institutions like 
the Weitzman Institute, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. who are doing things like with microarchaeology, mm-hmm. where they're doing residue analysis on all sorts of things, and mm-hmm. they're able to put it under their, you know, all their different equipment and get a much clearer picture that we think, based on all these other things, mm-hmm. that they cooked this mm-hmm. and that they probably cooked this way. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that they're doing is able to confirm that or say, yeah, but we're also seeing this, Mm -hmm. or actually Mm -hmm. we're not seeing so much of that, but we're seeing more of this, getting Mm -hmm. some hard data from the type of work that they are able to do. And it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from your experience, Dr. Schaefer-Elliott, let's get down to some more practical aspects of food and domestic life in ancient Israel. Let's talk about some food ingredients, okay? Sugar. Mm. Where did they get it from? Imported? Dried? So most of your sugars would have been natural sugars. Fruit... Uh, Mm -hmm. from honey. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have pressed fruit where Mm -hmm. you get that date syrup or dried fruit like raisins. Okay. Uh, Yeast derived from what sources? Uh, Brewer's yeast? Brewer's yeast and just the natural yeast that you get from from the air too. So if you left dough out after a while, natural Mm -hmm. yeast would finally start to do its work. They would have starters too, Mm -hmm. like we do with sourdough starters. What you're saying, it really brings to light the difficulty like of Passover when you have to throw all that stuff out once a year and start all over again. It's a lot of work. How about spices? Uh, I imagine that was very common on the trade route and things like that. Uh, Those would have been expensive. If you're just struggling to do this or do that, you know, you're Mm -hmm. you're not going to spend or trade things for for a whole lot of spices. But yeah, they had them. Uh, But you do have to imagine, well, who had most access to that? Have you run across anything in your research about how they were curdling their products to make the cheeses? There are churns. Uh, that we find and they're kind of long and they're kind of pointed on the end with holes in them so that they can be hung up and there's an opening in the middle where Mm -hmm. they would pour the milk in and you know swish it back and forth you would just hang it you know somewhere in the house but then they would also have ones made out of um, goat skin Mm -hmm. so one of the things that they would make out of goat skins Mm -hmm. uh, would be um, churns could be um, wine skins, water mm-hmm. skins, mm-hmm. tents. Let's move this forward a little bit. You've addressed a lot here, which is very, very fascinating in regards to foodstuffs and commodities for eating. People spent a lot of time prepping to get their daily food needs met. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like today where it's not quite as difficult to do. Uh, I mean, you come home from a long day, uh, you know, uh, uh, teaching at school and sometimes you want to just go grab something quick at the set the, at the market and bring it home and for the family mm-hmm. and you don't have a lot of time to really cook and prepare because you're you're busy and their life was for their sustenance every day so in your archaeological field work can you tell us what the primary mediterranean diet was based on what you know you can say that there's three primary ingredients that are called the Mediterranean triad. Uh, That would be cereals, grapes, and olives. 
So cereals, you know, could be made into any number of things. And like we said earlier, their diet was estimated to be um, 50% cereals. Olives were pressed for their oil. They didn't figure out how to brine them to eat them raw until really the Greco-Roman period. So Mm -hmm. in Iron Age Israel, olives were used for their olive oil, which was used for a variety of products. But then we also have grapes, which of course are a fruit that you would eat seasonally, that you could dry to make into raisins, but you would also make into wine. If you think about it, fermented beverages like wine or beer or some, what's sometimes referred to as maybe a strong drink. There's a debate about uh, whether that means beer or potentially something else. Uh-huh. Um, but that your fermented beverages were safer to drink than your water. So unless you got your water from a fresh running natural source, like a spring, or if you were just collecting water out of a cistern, that's pretty stagnant water. And you would want to boil that first (laughs) before you drink it. So drinking fermented beverages, regardless of what the actual alcohol content is, you know, people always talk about that would have been safer to drink. So cereals, grapes, and olives is, you're calling that the Mediterranean triad. And yet we were to be doing that today. I would probably be, uh, you know, probably 140, 50 kilo, probably 300 pounds (laughs) or more. So what is it about them versus today? And uh, how could they eat that kind of high caloric intake and not get fat? I mean, how did they do that? That's a really good question. I mean, if you imagine you're doing manual labor tasks all day, Mm -hmm. you are burning a lot of calories and you could eat a lot of bread. You know, you could drink wine every day and you're probably, you are putting so much more out there than you're taking in. So you would have eaten a lot of um, seasonal fruits and vegetables, Um, Even though vegetables kind of get the short end of the stick in Mm -hmm. the Bible, you know, they're not looked upon very favorably Mm -hmm. a lot of times. Mm. Um, Fruit, seasonal fruits that you you can dry and store hopefully as well and make things out of them. But then, of course, the cereals, which you could make into bread and porridge. Uh, for like a morning meal, or if things were really poor, you could eat that at night too. Uh, But then also legumes. So stews made out of legumes and vegetables and the occasional meat, if you had some, that would have been what you ate. Professor Schaefer Elliott, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And of course, thanks to each of you for giving Dr. Schaefer Elliott a listening part of your day to learn about some of the incredible research that she has exposed as a trained archaeologist in Israel, digging up Iron Age II biblical history, encompassing the period between King David and the southern kingdom of Judah just before its exile to Babylon. Dr. Schaefer Elliott has authored The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant. Also, she has authored Food in Ancient Judah, Domestic Cooking in the Time of the Hebrew Bible. And if you wish to contact Dr. Schaefer Elliott, you um, type in my name, Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, William Jessup University. It should take you directly to my, um, my webpage there. Join us again next time for our continued discussion with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott.